Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening to us today. Ben, how are you doing? Pretty good today. Yeah, I think I'm all right. How about yourself? Uh, it is a tough month and it will be a tough month <laughs> for the next few months. But I got to dig in the garden today. Yeah, spring is here. Spring is here and stuff is coming up. Some of the crocuses I planted, some of the tulips I planted. It's just, it's really cool. It's really nice. Yeah. So I'm feeling good. I'm feeling the renewal. That's good. But it does put me in the mood to watch The Wicker Man. Mmm. Which is unfortunate because that is not what we were watching today. (laughs) Isn't The Wicker Man more of like a fall no it's spring it's yeah it's about may day yeah i was just i was thinking because it's like because the harvests failed and like harvest is fall so i was yeah i got mixed up i got turned around fake geek boy i'm just kidding i love you um (laughs) yeah tell the folks at home what we're watching today today sarah we are watching the man who could cheat death from 1959 directed by terence fisher this is a hammer horror film even though it has a title that's very columbia pictures um, I thought we had escaped titles that were The Man Who Blah Blah Blahed, but here we are again. Here we are again on my own. And this is an adaptation of The Man in Half Moon Street. Yes. Uh, which we saw a like Hollywood adaptation of uh, back in 1945. Yeah. Um, which I don't remember a lot about other than I think piano music and it was kind of like a like also ran dorian gray kind of shtick yeah you're close enough okay yeah um i I, it didn't make like a huge impression yeah that's because we considered it not horror oh did we yeah oh so that was episode 127 if anyone wants to go back and listen, it does have more information on uh, the guy who wrote the play that is adapted from. Yeah. But yeah, I can give people the, the lay of the land. I think the main thing I remember about that movie really is that it was a bitch to find a copy, but you could find the musical score everywhere. Like hmm. everyone loves the soundtrack and you just can't find the movie. Before I dive in, I just want to say uh, Half Moon Street is a real street in London. Oh, which is why I also had trouble finding more information about <laughs> things because it kept coming up with like other books or whatever who use Half Moon Street in their titles. Okay. And I was like, wh- why? Oh, it's a real street. Okay. Yeah, they, they aren't all part of the Half Moon Street cinematic universe. No. Um, so way back in 1939, there was a play in London called The Man in Half Moon Street by Barry Lyndon. <laughs> Not that one. Well, yes, that one. It's a pseudonym of playwright Alfred Edgar, who took that pseudonym from the 1844 novel of that name. Alfred Edgar, um, he is best known for that play um, and for some really fantastic screenplays. Particularly, I'll mention 1944's The Lodger adaptation, 1945's Hangover Square adaptation, uh, he did the screenplay to 1952 Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Greatest Show on Earth. Oh. 
1953 adaptation of War of the Worlds. Oh. Basically, in 1939, he was like, sweet, I'm moving to Hollywood to write screenplays. And so he does a ton of those. But as of 1939 with this play, it did 172 performances in West End. So pretty successful. That's pretty good. And then in the 40s, he transitioned to film, never looked back. And so it was unclear whether he was involved at all in the 1945 American adaptation of his play, but he would have been in Hollywood, so he might have been consulted briefly. So that film, as I said, we covered it in episode 127. It's directed by Ralph Murphy. And we decided it wasn't horror. We said it was too tepid to be horror and too melodramatic to be thriller. Hmm. Yeah, there's like a central love story i think that's a big part of it yeah overall it's kind of bland it's paced like a play the fact that there's like crime and a mad scientist in it does not make it a horror movie Mm. in the film uh there is a um my notes i wrote gland scientist but i meant to look up the actual name for that is i think it's endocrinologist or something yeah that sounds right so um, endocrinologist Julian Carell is in love with a woman named Eve Brandon, but it turns out that Julian has a dark secret, which is that while he may look like he's in his mid-30s, he's actually in his mid-90s. He's been keeping himself young by using glands from other people that he murders. Um, and that's the closest it gets to Dorian Gray. Hmm. So Julian, um, he's been doing this for like years and years and years of finding a young medical student being like, hey, you want to get involved with some experiments and then killing them and stealing their glands. Case in point, this time around, he saves a guy named Alan from a suicide attempt when he jumps into the Thames. Um, And Julian's like, hey, let me help you by having you help me with my research. Uh, And so Alan gets used and killed in the experiment, but the glands fail to kind of transfer over to Julian. And so he's now going to be rapidly aging. In the midst of all of this, there's like an investigation of like who Julian is, the murder of Alan, the murder of past people, yada, yada. So with the cops on his tail, he ends up eloping with Eve. They're on a train. They're like trying to get out of Dodge. Um, But he continues to age and Eve says, no, don't worry. Like I pledge that I will always love you, even in spirit, uh, even as you rapidly age. The cops are closing in and he escapes the train. The cops can't find him because they're looking for like 35 year old Julian. But now he's like 90, 100 years old and he like dies on the train platform in front of Eve. Uh, and so that's the movie. Mm. It's uh, it's not horror, but I think it's still worthwhile to cover because Hammer Productions is known as Hammer Horror. Yes. And while, yes, they have been branching out into other genres, as we've discussed in past episodes around Hammer Productions, I think it's really interesting to see what a British horror-focused studio will do with a play that is a very british play sure this adaptation of the man in half moon street was definitely like 
regarded as just like the next horror project Mm -hmm. for Hammer. Um, It's director Terrence Fisher. It's writer Jimmy Sangster. It's produced by Michael Carreras. It's cinematography by Jack Asher. Like this is the core Hammer Horror team that did the run from like Curse of Frankenstein through Horror of Dracula, Revenge of Frankenstein, Hound of the Baskervilles, and The Mummy. Mm -hmm. What's a little interesting here is from... The research I have, it looks like they changed all the character names. Okay. And they actually shot the film under the working title, The Man in the Rue Noir. So that would make it like make me think that it's set in Paris instead of London. And it's now like Black Street instead of Half Moon Street. I also feel like there's a tie to um, the uh, Rue Morgue. Sure, sure, sure. Um, Which is not a real street. Right. Um, (laughs) But anyway, they went with the title, The Man Who Could Cheat Death. And, you know, they have the whole team all assembled here. This was just like the next project on the docket, basically. And so, you know, like those other films I mentioned, the intent was for this to star Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. And U.S. distribution rights were sold to Paramount. And pre-production went ahead. And then six days before shooting... Peter Cushing dropped out. Oh. Citing exhaustion after this string of hammer horror pictures that had been shooting since 1957. And he's not a young guy. Yeah. Like at this time, he's like, what, in his late 30s? Early, early 40s? 40s, I think, maybe. Yeah. But like he has gone basically nonstop since Curse of Frankenstein. And like his most recent roles were. Like Hound of the Baskervilles, where he's like super energetic and running around and jumping around everywhere. And then like the mummy, which was also like a very physical part for him because they were really making him into this like action star kind of guy after yeah. uh, after Horror of Dracula. Um, so yeah, he cited exhaustion as his reason for dropping out. Hammer threatened to sue him for breach of contract. Um, but they actually didn't have a contract with him. They just had like a verbal agreement that was sort of along the lines of like, all right, well, see you on the next movie. Like just kind of like, see you at, see you at work on Monday. Like there was no actual, it was just like, yeah, this is the next thing we're doing. It's the whole same crew as ever. So you, you know, he'll be on set, right? Like there was no actual contract. This left hammer in kind of a shitty position because they had sold the distribution rights to Paramount on the basis of like, it's Peter Cushing. Um, So without a star anymore, uh, Paramount was pretty angry. So they actually dropped the film to second bill status in the U.S. Oh, wow. Cushing was replaced by actor Anton Diffring, uh, who had actually played this role in an ITV adaptation of The Man in Half Moon Street 18 months earlier. Would that have been in 1957? Uh, 18 months is like a year and a half. So maybe. Okay. Cause yeah, when I was looking up adaptations, there was a movie adaptation of the man in half moon street from 1957, but because we didn't touch it at all, I didn't think to speak to it. That would be the ITV, like TV movie version, basically teleplay. So Anton Diffring was born Alfred Polak in Germany in 1916. Uh, his father was Jewish and his mother was Christian and he himself was gay. So he fled Germany in 1936 after studying acting in Berlin and Vienna. He made a few uncredited appearances in British films in the 1940s, but his acting career didn't really take off until the 1950s when his 
blonde hair, blue eyes, and square jaw saw him winning lots of roles as Nazis in movies. Uh, In films like I Am a Camera from 1955, which is the like pre-musical version of Cabaret. Okay. Um, He's also in Where Eagles Dare in 1968. And he's also in the unreleased um, Holocaust film, The Day the Clown Cried, uh, from 1972, starring Jerry Lewis. Okay. Fun fact about Anton Diffring. Uh, in 1958, Diffring first became involved with Hammer when they produced a pilot for a TV series. Uh, the series was going to be called Tales of Frankenstein. And the idea was to have a show about the adventures of, like, the on-the-run Baron Frankenstein from the Hammer films. Like the Hulk TV show? Right, exactly. Like, you know how they ended Revenge of Frankenstein with, like, he had changed his name and grown a mustache and went to London? Yeah. Like, the idea was to, like, pick up from there with him, like, going on adventures throughout Europe, having to, like, flee from towns and change his name. And basically differing was replacing Peter Cushing in the role for the TV show because they wanted to keep Cushing for, you know, movies and stuff, right? Um, So Jimmy Sangster, who had written the first two Frankenstein movies, he wrote the pilot. And there were actually five other scripts written by Hammer writers that were done. However, the show was a co-production with Columbia Pictures so that it would show on TV in the U.S. as well as the U.K., and Columbia Pictures actually owned the TV rights to the Universal Monsters movies. And so Columbia wanted to use aspects of, like, the Universal lore, um, including the classic Jack Pierce monster design. Mm-hmm. Um, so that meant they wanted to basically retool the premise of the show so that the monster would be part of it as well, when, like, the monster is not really a big element in the Hammer films. So they retooled the show's premise to be Frankenstein's continuing quest for a new brain for the monster to replace the faulty criminal brain that had caused it to become violent. So in each episode, he would like meet a new character, get involved in their story, and then like kill them and steal their brain for the monster. And then something would go wrong, right? Sure. So they got Don McGowan, who played the like land version of Gilman in the creature walks among us to play the monster with like the classic Jack Pierce design. Um, and the new pilot was written by uh, like horror pulp writers, Henry Kuttner and his wife, CL Moore. And then it was rewritten. And then the pilot directed by Kurt Seatmack. Oh, um, and they actually had additional scripts like ready down the pipe, for this, including one written by Jerome Bixby. Fascinating. But the pilot did not sell. So they made they shot the one pilot with Differing and McGowan, and then it did not sell to any networks. Um, Curtsy and Mac actually felt this was for the best because he didn't believe you could sustain a series of no. Frankenstein monster stories. No, that would be incredibly repetitive. Yeah. But also, so was most of TV at this time. Very true. What's interesting is that the the Hammer scripts that were done before they retooled the series, where it was much more in line with their movie series, they would eventually get reused as like the basis for some of the feature films later in the Hammer Frankenstein series. Like they would take kind of the core of that TV episode and expand it out into a feature for some of the later films. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, why wouldn't you do that? Yeah, right? exactly. Uh, but yeah, so Differing replaced Cushing again for this project. 
He would make a lot of later genre film appearances. He's in the 1966 version of Fahrenheit 451. He's in a Doctor Who serial in 1988. Uh, And then he passed away from AIDS in 1989. Okay. Christopher Lee appears here without Cushing. uh, So he didn't walk. At this time in his personal life, he was courting Countess Henrietta Ewa Agnes von Rosen of Sweden. Yes, I remember you telling me about this. Yeah, so his, <laughs> um, her father, Count Fritz von Rosen, was at this time making Lee jump through like all kinds of hoops to basically get his permission to marry his daughter. Uh, Lee had to submit to interviews. He had his life investigated by private detectives. And these guys learned what a badass he is. Basically, uh, he had to provide character references from like (laughs) different people. And eventually he had to get the blessing of the King of Sweden. And Lee did all of these things. And finally, like the couple was to be wed And then days before the ceremony, Lee called off the wedding, believing that the Countess deserved someone who could give her a better life than, quote, the disheveled world of an actor. Oh, this is like a rom-com. Like, it needs to be like, oh, it's almost Christmas, and then he turns (laughs) away. But then a happy ending of, like, her coming to him and being like, no, I love you, Christopher Lee. Yeah, no, there's no happy ending here. There's just, I feel like her dad making him jump through all these hoops, making him eventually feel like he wasn't good enough for her. So in the end, the dad won. Yeah. Fuck that guy. Anyways, it's okay. Uh, Christopher Lee in 1960 will meet the woman who becomes his wife for the rest of his life. So it's fine. Um, But that's like a whole year away, (laughs) Ben. (laughs) We're still in 1959 and we've been here forever. When am I going to learn about this new woman? Okay, sorry, back on track. Yeah, so the female lead for this film is actress Hazel Court, who played Elizabeth in Curse of Frankenstein. The 33-year-old actress took part in one of the first topless scenes shot for UK cinema in this movie uh, for a scene where her character poses nude for a sculpture. Court was simultaneously terrified and excited about the prospect of appearing nude. Might even say titillated? Maybe. Um, She agreed to do it because she felt the scene was tasteful and that she would be beautifully shot. The scene was done with like a skeleton crew, but ultimately she was only shown from the back in the UK and US cuts of the film. Her breasts were only seen in the European cut of the movie, which is now lost. The film's score is by composer Richard Bennett, who composed classical avant-garde and jazz music he has over 200 concert pieces as well as 50 film scores to his name he was knighted so properly he's sir richard bennett though he wasn't knighted at this time Um, and he's also considered one of the greatest british composers of his generation as well as the one of the most influential homosexuals in music that's an award he was given by, by gay magazine at some point now no disrespect to this guy uh-huh was liberace in the running because i don't I feel know if like... liberace ever composed music i think he just performed okay that's that's fair okay the score for this movie was very early in his career but other films that he did include nicholas and alexandra in 1971 uh murder on the orient express in 1974 and gormenghast in 2000 and he passed away in 2012 
The Man Who Could Cheat Death was rated X by the BBFC after cuts and was released November 30th, 1959 on the top half of a double bill with The Evil That Is Eve, a French <laughs> thriller that was titled Un Manque et la Belle in its original French release and A Kiss for a Killer in its U.S. release. Um, to go back to the rating X. Yes. At this time, is that still being touted as like part of the marketing material? Oh, um, like it's not as heavily touted as it was for like Quatermass Experiment and stuff like that. Because by this point, like Hammer's trying to get X ratings on purpose. They're kind of becoming like the standard. They're expected for a Hammer picture at this point. But like, yeah, I mean, on the poster, it's going to say that it's X rated. And that's part of like, you know, getting people in for like a horror picture. Right. Okay. Um, so it's an important part of like demonstrating that like this is a horror movie. Yes. Right. Is that it's got an X rating. Like if it's just a regular melodrama, it shouldn't get that. Right. Theoretically. Theoretically. In the United States, uh, The Man Who Could Cheat Death, as I mentioned earlier, ran as the lower half of Double Bills, with the upper half being a drama called The Black Orchid. The movie received mixed reviews from critics, uh, like then and now. Um, it was considered to be like well-written, well-acted, uh, well-shot in Technicolor, um, but also to be too talky, dull, unimaginative, unambitious, and generally just like not one of Hammer's more memorable efforts. Okay. So yeah, I feel mixed, like, mixed reviews. I feel like not being memorable is just part for the course for this material. Sure. But we'll see what Hammer does with it. So this film is available on Blu-ray from Kino Lorber, and you can rent it on iTunes, YouTube, and Google Play, and stream it on Tubi. Fantastic. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. Uh, if it's on YouTube, it will be on our playlist which you can find at screamscenepodcast.com you're going to hear a brief musical interlude and when we come back we will discuss the man who could cheat death from 1959 directed by terence fisher see you on the other side everybody Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Man Who Could Cheat Death from 1959, directed by Terrence Fisher. Spoiler, he couldn't. <laughs> Ain't that always just the way? Yes. Uh, Sarah, what did you think? Uh, I mean, I think they managed to make it horror um, in the sense of like, you gave me a look and now I'm worried, mm. but... I will stick to what I'm saying and finish with, um, I think they managed to make it horror, but oh boy, I just don't think this story works for that. I think they needed to change more. Yeah, I would agree with that. Let's, uh, let's talk about how the story goes this time around. Sure. So it's actually fairly close to the original. Okay. Um, they change names. We are now in Paris instead of London. On the Rue Noir. For some reason. For some reason. In the original, dude's a painter. 
Um, and that's how they kind of clue into him being old because they're like, oh, this is like this like really famous painter from like the mm. like 50 years ago or right. whatever. And this time around, he's a sculptor. sculptor. But in any case, we follow Dr. Georges Bonnet, who has a medical practice, but mainly the movie focuses on his hobby as a sculptor. And he's always been a bit of a playboy with his models. All of his models are women. All of these sculptures are of like from the belly button up. They're they're busts. They're busts. Well, bust to me means like shoulders up. Yeah, That's what but I, I wanted to be all innuendo-y about it. I see. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, he gets very familiar with everyone's bust. And tonight is the premiere of his sculpture of a model named Margot, who it's clear he's developed a bit of a dalliance with. She thinks it's a bit more serious than it possibly actually is, especially once an old flame of his Janine walks back into his life during this premiere, this soiree. Joined by Janine is... um. A new romantic rival for Georges, it's Dr. Pierre Girard. So the night after the reception, Margot goes to Georges and is like, yeah, right? Like, we're in love. We're going to be together forever, right? And Georges... me like one of your Italian girls. And Georges is like, Margot, not now. I'm doing some serious business in my study. Leave me alone. And she's like, no, I want to talk about it now. And Georges is like, no, you don't understand. And then he turns green and ages a bit. And she freaks out and he like grabs her mouth to keep her from screaming and basically has some kind of like burn mark on her face as a result. She faints. Um, You think she's dead. And then he goes into his safe and there's a bubbling green potion (laughs) uh, that he then takes a sip of. And that seems to restore his youth a bit. And he's no longer green or old. You know how we all turn green when we age. Absolutely. Yeah, so while Georges appears around 35, he's actually 104 years old. This is the result of uh, kind of an, a medical experiment that he did with um, a friend of his when he was young, Dr. Ludwig. And basically, it was an operation on like a certain gland in the area of the appendix. Um, by like replacing it, you can kind of have everlasting life, you'll never be ill, that sort of thing but you need to replace it every 10 years. Now, sometimes, you know, scheduling gets weird. We're adults. We know how scheduling can get weird when you're trying to get together with your friends for them to perform a very serious operation on you. And you need to like push that meeting out by a couple weeks. Well, Georges developed a a green potion that can um, basically extend that period of time for when he needs a new gland installed. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what else to call it. So basically extends that time. Um, Unfortunately, this green potion um, will only last for so long, and it also causes mental instability. They never explain what it is or call it anything other than the fluid. Yes. Um, Good job, Jimmy Sangster. (laughs) He's churning these things out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, so Dr. Ludwig is his friend, but he's late coming to the operation. So Georges has now had to drink this potion for a bit. 
Ludwig finally arrives, and you may be surprised to see he is an old man. He's like 89 years old, and actually his delay was due to him having a stroke. His right arm and his hand are now um, very, very shaky, so he can no longer actually perform the surgery. So they're like, okay, well, what surgeons do you know? And... (laughs) George is like, oh, well, my old flame has this like possible boyfriend, uh, Pierre. He could do it. They invite him over and they don't give him details. But Ludwig is basically like, this will save George's life. And uh, it's just like a gland thing. There's no like ethical things like do it. And Pierre's like, you know what? For you, Ludwig, because you're a big name in the medical community for you. I'll do it. And then... Inspector Legree shows up asking questions about Margot and her disappearance. This causes Ludwig to become suspicious because he's like, hey, George, uh, this is like the third time you've had a model disappear. And it's always right around this 10 year mark that you need the gland. Um, What's up with that? (laughs) Like two disappearing would be a coincidence. But three, I think something's up. And he basically calls out George for murdering these women. And Ludwig's like, you know what? This this has to stop. We've dabbled with like control of the natural world. Uh, we've gone into God's domain, yada, yada, yada. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do the operation. And they actually have a bit of a scuffle in which Ludwig purposefully destroys the rest of the green potion. This is as Georges is turning green and orange, and so he kills Ludwig, um, and he manages to save enough fluid from the floor to drink a little bit so he can, like, not be green for a little bit. Because it's not easy being green, Ben. Now, without Ludwig around to, you know, put the stamp of his reputation behind the surgery, Pierre pulls out of the surgery. He's been told that Ludwig had to, like, rush home for, like, some family emergency. Pierre's like, well, if he's not here, I'm not doing it. Sorry. So, Georges decides this is the best choice of action. I'm going to kidnap Janine, who we were going to elope anyway, so of course she'll be into this. Kidnap Janine, put her into, like, this dungeon place under the railroad to force Pierre to do the surgery. George is also like, you know, the worst part of being 104 years old, but looking like I'm 35, is that I have to do this alone. So I'm going to do the surgery on Janine so she can be like me and we can be together forever, just forever. While Janine is locked up, she finds Margot, who is in fact not dead, but has gone mad and is like childish and stuff. And it's like implied that she's gone mad either from being locked up or from exposure to this green fluid stuff. So Pierre is forced to do the surgery. And while he's like cleaning up his tools, Georges runs off to go get Janine, causing Pierre to call in Legree, Inspector Legree to bring him up to speed and they go off to try to find where Janine might be hidden and then it's revealed that Pierre made the incision but he didn't actually do the surgery and put in the new gland which it's also been cleared that these glands are coming from murder victims if it wasn't clear with the climax um Georges is with Janine saying hey you'll be like me and she's like that sounds terrible 
And then he starts turning green and getting old. And that's when he realizes that the gland wasn't actually in installed. <laughs> and <laughs> um, she starts freaking out. He starts rapidly aging. As he put it, the full 104 years of age and decay and illness and any kind of ailment are going to hit him in like the next couple of minutes. Yeah, so he turns into like a green zombie man. Yeah. You know, like how 104-year-olds look. <laughs> no offense to any 104-year-olds listening to the podcast. While that's happening, Margot gets out of her little cage and she's like laughing and being like a bit of a child and throws a lantern at Georges, causing him to burst into flames. She burns up in the flames. Janine gets rescued by Pierre and Legree just in time. And that's the end. So... So, I, like, besides some of that stuff at the ending with it being like, oh, fire, and a bit more of, like, action-packed film kind of ending, this is fairly accurate to the adaptation we've seen already from 1945. Well, I think it's it's probably more memorable. Yes. Um, I do think, basically, that the reviews that I talked about are on the money. I think this is well-written. I think it's well-acted. I think it's well-shot. I think there's great use of color. But it is also really boring, yes, uh, super talky, and hardly anything happens. Um, there are a few like sexy or gruesome moments, but they don't make up for the fact that most of this movie is scenes of two men explaining the story back and forth to one another in like various combinations. Absolutely. I totally agree. It's old fashioned and boring. The music is doing a valiant job to try to do some heavy lifting to make this feel more exciting than it is. Um, I don't think it quite does it. The music doesn't feel like it's the right genre. Yeah, because it's like trying to be all like bombastic as George is like leaning over to Ludwig being like, where do you think I got the gland? Like it's, it doesn't quite work. And I think it's because it has, still has a bit of a languid pace of a play the movie's an hour and 22 minutes long and the point where he kidnaps janine and tells pierre like you're gonna do the operation that's an hour in yeah and that's honestly like that's where the story starts because the whole hour before that is just people explaining the backstory back and forth to one another more or less with like a couple of little exciting incidents along the way to like keep our attention basically. Well, I, I disagree that that's where the story starts because you do have a neat moment of Ludwig coming to realize just how far gone Georges is, but it's definitely, it did not need to be an hour in. It may be like 40 minutes. Yeah. Like that switch where Ludwig decides mm. he's not going to be involved with this anymore. That should be like the end of act one. Yes. Um, and it feels like it's more like the end of act two. Honestly, the biggest problem this movie has, and it's, it's you know, part of it's that coming from a play thing, but like Jimmy Sangster wrote Curse of Frankenstein. He wrote Horror of Dracula. We know that he's completely willing to be like, oh, this won't work as a movie and toss something out and start from scratch with the pieces he's got, right? So the fact that we got this like super talky thing where, yeah, it's, it's like either it's Georges and Ludwig explaining their own backstories to each other or... George explaining it to Pierre or Pierre explaining it to the inspector, but it's like so much of this movie is just two guys talking about the story 
what I would really have loved to have seen is a much more like show don't tell kind of thing here because there's a lot of parts of the story that I think could work if we weren't having to take them on faith basically sure so Hazel Court right I think she's great in this movie I think Anton Diffring is great Um, I would agree I was like oh damn that's Anton damn (laughs) I didn't Uh, realize how hot he was um I think Christopher Lee is really fun to see in like a heroic role for once and he has lines right that's like the one bonus of it being a very talky movie right. is like hey christopher lee gets to talk um arnold Merley, who was 72 when this came out he does a great job as ludwig yeah like very impressive to see an actor that old who's kind of able to carry the scenes that he's able to carry in this movie but like overall my feeling was with janine and george I didn't buy them loving each other because the only reason we're given for like why they love each other is that they fell in love in Italy before the start of the movie. And now they're back together. And now they're just repeating back and forth like, oh, I love you. I love you. Why can't you love me? Why can't you come with me? Oh, I want to be with you forever. And like, okay, he's handsome and she's hot, but there's no like chemistry here i don't understand like okay like on paper i get it like he's a doctor and a sculptor and he's talented and whatever (laughs) and like she's hot but like there's nothing i i would have wanted to have seen them fall in love in italy and it's the same thing with ludwig and george where like i love this idea of these two men who embarked on this like scientific experiment and like one chose to do the immortality and the other didn't and they've you know the one who's immortal has to like change his name and his city like every 10 years so people don't get suspicious but like his old friend has to still like come and see him every 10 years to do the operation again and as they get older their like relationship and thoughts about getting older and dying change where like after all these years George is still afraid of dying and getting older but like Ludwig who has gotten older is like I'm not really afraid of dying like this is fine this is how people are supposed to be I think this was a mistake and you know meanwhile like George is gonna do anything to to keep this going and this way that like Ludwig kind of realizes that things have gotten out of hand that's a great story but Mm -hmm. it sucks when what we're getting is the last little bit of that story and the rest is just communicated to us in backstory. Like I agree. Like that was like the part that I really enjoyed about this movie was their confrontation. Mm -hmm. That relationship is really dramatically strong. It makes me think like this should have started with the two of them as young men in med school, like, the social network like it's jesse eisenberg and (laughs) and andrew garfield and they like embark on this project together and then we should have seen like one of them getting older and finding a wife and like settling down and having a family and the other one having this like playboy lifestyle where he gets to like bang all the hot chicks and be a famous sculptor forever but it gradually becomes like more and more hollow hollow for him and he's like he needs ludwig and it's clear that ludwig's the only person he actually has like emotional connection to he's his oldest friend but you know he's turning into like a shallow psychopath and Ludwig has like a real life and then at the end we have like this confrontation where Ludwig decides no more and leaves George to die but instead like that's the start of the movie and even as the start of the movie like if it had just been the start and then the story was about maybe the Pierre-Georges back and forth relationship interplay but it's not even about that you know like the the, the pacing's all over the place 
I think what we're seeing here is that burnout that Cushing was describing Mm. happening to everyone else on these movies. I'm going to point specifically to Sangster. Yeah. um, Because I think that his job here was the weakest. The last Hammer movie we watched was The Mummy. Right. And I believe that that is the lowest ranking of these movies that have been hmm. coming from them. Yeah, we didn't like that one. We didn't. Uh, sorry, Benito Serino. But it's been like diminishing returns. Yeah. We did have a high point with Dracula. I believe it's still like number five or six or something on the list. But like diminishing returns for sure. And I think it's because they've been working so hard and churning things out. And at a certain point, you need to realize that like you need to take a break. Yeah. Peter Cushing was right to take a break. I think Jimmy, who we've we've been seeing that he's been doing some side jobs as well. Yeah. And those movies have not been doing good. Yeah. Because he's so burned out. Yeah. It's like, you know, so people these days have like a lot of Marvel Studios burnout, I yes. think. And I think it's probably you can make an easy case that that studio is burning out the people working for it, that we've seen like a, a downshift in quality. But before that back a few phases the thing that marvel did that i think was smart at first like once they started ramping things up let's say phase two marvel is they were putting out like four or five movies a year but like one is the iron man series and one is the thor series and one is captain america series and those series have like their own casts and their own writers and their own directors so it's it's sort of like you have different units going Right. Whereas here, like the Frankenstein movies, the Dracula movies, the mummy movies, the Sherlock Holmes movies, it's all the same guys. It's all the same crew, just one after another after another. And if they want to keep this horror direction for Hammer, I think sustainable, they need to start having like a few different teams, you know? Absolutely. I think that is why this movie fails. Yeah. Because I... We can talk about it. I don't know if we're ready to talk about it. It's definitely more horror than the the 1945 version. And I think they're trying to make it horror. Everything points to them trying to make it horror from like the opening credits, the marketing, um, them going for the X rating, as we talked about. Um, True, this group of people, both cast and crew, have made non-horror movies together. But this is them trying to do horror and they just they just fumbled. They just fumbled because of burnout. And then the parts that you can see that they really spiced up for this movie, because they were like, because we we're trying to make this horror, they are going back to the their bag of tricks. And these are recognizable horror moments of the the way the lighting and the shooting is on uh George's face when he's turning, the yeah. way everything is structured around those particular scenes. They're trying to do horror. It's just, I think that they underestimated how much this particular story would need an overhaul to really go the full way. And I think they have underestimated how much they have burned out everyone on this crew. Yeah, I mean, so my thinking was this was melodrama and not horror. Oh, it's definitely melodramatic. I'll give you that. (laughs) And where I was kind of coming from with that was like, to me, things didn't ramp up enough until the very end. And even then it was like, 
feeling much more like Penny Dreadful <laughs> dime novel kind of stuff to me. Fair enough. I, I think I'm willing to agree with you that it's horror because I think as you talk to me about it and as I think about it, the thing is that this is this this is totally in line with like the level of horror you might see in Phantom of the Opera or mm-hmm. like Sweeney Todd. Like that style of horror, it just by 1959, the guys like I've seen you reinvent Frankenstein and Dracula. Like you guys know that you need to have, have a little bit more happening than this. Yeah, and I think to that point as well, the energy is mm. lacking in this movie. Yeah. Peter Cushing was bringing a lot of that energy, um, both in terms of his exuberance for the material, but also his physicality. And no one has that kind of physicality in this movie because I I think they didn't make allowances for it. The other thing, too, is like I think all of the actors in this movie are good. Yes. And I think they're doing a good job. But it's a little weird because the only person in the cast that Anton Differing has any chemistry with is um, Arnold Marley as Ludwig, which I think part of that is that their characters have the strongest relationship that like the actual drama is really what's happening with those two. But maybe it's also the fact that those two are German and Christopher Lee doesn't have any band. Like there's no connection. There's no sizzle like between Lee and Cushing. Uh, You know, there's nothing really between Hazel Court and Anton Differing. There's like, he feels like such an outsider basically in this cast. And also it's so paint by numbers in yeah. some places. Like the biggest moment for me where it was like, oh, we're operating a bit on uh, autopilot. autopilot is there's this scene where like the whole cast essentially is all gathered together in like the parlor and they're talking about things. Oh yeah. With Legree. Yeah. So like Legree hasn't shown up yet. Right. Mm. It's like they're all in the parlor and they're talking about the plot. And then like the butler comes in and is like, oh, there's someone at the door, sir. And they all go to the door and he answers it. And before the door opened, I was like, hello, I'm Inspector Watson Futz of the Scotland Yard kind of thing. And I didn't know. <laughs> the French Scotland the French Yard. French Scotland Yard. And I didn't know who the character was or what was going to be happening next. But lo and behold, here's the Sûreté and it's Inspector Legree. Because just, hey, it's this many minutes into the movie and we had to have an inspector show up, right? Absolutely. Um, so let's move on to ranking. Sure. I don't have a spot picked out because I wasn't feeling this as being horror. Um, So I'm totally on board with kind of hearing where you were looking. So when I started trying to figure out where to rank, um, I looked at the lowest ranked Terrence Fisher movie, and it is indeed The Mummy at 213. I felt this is probably better than The Mummy. The Mummy had way too much of the of the backstory of the flashback. And yeah, we had a, a very interesting conversation about that. Hmm. That is episode 278, if anyone wants to go to listen. We're going above that. And then my eyes came to the second lowest movie, Terrence Fisher movie, which is The Revenge of Frankenstein at number 92. Big swath. Big swath. But I was like, okay, I think that I will make this my ceiling at the very least. As I started going down, we hit some odd territory because in this area we have the manster, the bad seed, 
the wasp woman is also in here, which we just watched. And I feel like in the wasp woman, you had to convince me that was horror. In this movie, I had to convince you this was horror. I do feel like the wasp woman is probably more horror than like as a cohesive unit than the man who cheated death. It's a tough rank because I think on like a lot of technical levels, this movie is more proficient than a lot of films like in this area. Like it's better shot and put together and all these kinds of things. Yeah, there's color. Um, There's like cool color lighting and, you know, but I have to take just so many points away for just how boring this is, how old fashioned it is. And Honestly, like for a 1959 movie, I think the thing that I'm going to take the most points away for is just how much of like a play yes. this is. Where it's like, it's not 1934 anymore, guys. Like we can have scenes that don't take place in the parlor. Yeah. So a lot of these movies in this area as well had something to say. Whereas mm. this movie, I don't think it has anything to say beyond the trite meddled in God's way, blah. Mm-hmm. So then my eyes came across number 104, the thing that couldn't die. Very funny how close in title these are. Yes. Um, that is the movie where we are in like a campsite or like a, a ranch and there's like a psychic oh, who can figure head. out. Yeah. And figure out like where the water is. That movie is so we have not seen a movie like that before right it's uh-huh. so unique uh-huh. it, doing its own thing yeah right below that is night of the blood beast by kowalski that movie on a technical level fucking sucks mm-hmm. it is so poorly done mm-hmm. so my while i have a range i was feeling like this should go at least above the night of the blood beast but probably below the thing that couldn't die. So ultimately my range is between 92 and 105, but my spot is 105. Ooh. I we need to go lower. Okay. We well, need to go lower. Part of why I was like struggling with going lower is things like the rally movies. House of Dracula is at 114. Like how far but down you know, We also have stuff like Phantom of the Convent at 119. We have like white zombie at 131 like i think this needs to go lower than some stuff like that i don't think so because white zombie Mm -hmm. just to bring that one forward Mm -hmm. is a callback to a lot of silent movies it delivers exposition in a very unique way which i remember praising but a lot of it is homage to silent Sure. Sometimes to its detriment. This film, The Man Who Cheated Death, it has color. It has very interesting lighting. Yes, a lot of it is set in the parlor. But when we have the opportunity, there is a lot of like close-ups. I remember the first close-up on the eyes as they're changing. Yeah, very like, good. There's, there's more to it than what White Zombie was doing. Okay. So here's where I'm looking. Okay. Tell me. It's quite a bit lower, yeah, but not fine. like super low. Yeah. I'm looking around like 155 to 160, that kind of area, um, where we have Invaders from Mars, The Vampire's Ghost, Le Main de Diable, 
The Bat, the uh, sound one uh, with Vincent Price, Soul of a Monster, and Captive Wild Woman. I think this is definitely better than Captive Wild Woman and is probably better than some of these others. But I think I think Invaders from Mars like has more energy and more pep and get up and go than this. Oh, yeah. The, the repeated cave hallways of the inflated condoms. <sighs> um, yeah. I am at least glad that we agree that this is a very tough rank. What do you think about 4D Man at 148? Because that movie takes a while to get going. I was getting a little frustrated with it because it was so focused on like the romantic triangle. Hmm. Ultimately, it pays off with the drama and being horror and everything. That payoff doesn't happen in The Man Who Cheated Death. Well, what doesn't happen in The Man Who Could Cheat Death is we don't have the buildup. Yes. Right? So we can't have the payoff. So it's it's almost like, you know, The Man Who Could Cheat Death is, I think it, it kind of, um, it's leaning on some stuff it's leaning on that victorian setting and the foggy streets that they give paris <laughs> and like the atmosphere to kind of nudge you into like this is a horror movie whereas like 4d man because it's like oh we're outside at a park in spring and we're laughing and whatever like it doesn't feel like horror at all but then as you said that lets us have that true feeling of the drama when things go bad. Whereas here, like things already went bad long before the story starts and we're just here to watch them fall apart. So there isn't like enough dramatic change. So I'm inclined to say below for D man, this versus Dracula's daughter Unfortunately, as interesting as Dracula's Daughter tries to be in its opening, it devolves into a greatest hits, but with a lady instead. Um, and Dunport, like, worse. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, do you think this is better than Zombies of Moratau? That's when they the zombies, like, go pop and, like, disappear from the screen. I remember just that that's the one where they're on, like, a plantation. Yeah. Yeah. That's also really hard because I can see how Zombies of Moratau ties to other like zombie movies in terms of like like the Haitian stuff and also can see it looking forward because they are a little more mob like. Mm. Right. Um but I think the craft, the level of craft that goes into this movie versus Zombies of Moratau, like I think I think it has to go above. Okay. Well, I'm cool with this spot then. Okay. Okay. So entering the list at the new number 149 is The Man Who Could Cheat Death from 1959, directed by Terrence Fisher. You know what's uh, still above it, though? The Killer Shrews? The Killer Shrews! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I just find that hilarious. Um, if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you feel that we have not given the man who cheated death enough credit, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or over Twitter uh, for as long as it exists and does not implode at underscore scream scene. Scream scene updates every Wednesday on apple podcasts google podcasts soundcloud and spotify you can subscribe to the show using our rss feed you can 
drop us a review or a star rating uh, where those things are possible. You can tell a friend about the show. Uh, or if you want to help support the show monetarily, you can head on over to patreon.com slash podcast where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content, and patrons of all levels get to vote in our monthly polls to determine our horror-adjacent episode each month. Uh, For May, we're going to have Zombies on Broadway. Hell yeah. So that's patreon.com slash podcast. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, next week's going to be something very different. Uh, We are getting the first Filipino horror movie. Oh. Uh, It's been released under many different titles, uh, but the one I'm going to be referring to it as is Terror is a Man and is our last horror film for 1959. That is a dope title. Yes. Cool. I'm very excited. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.